and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. You don't often observe easier chemistry than that what exists between the two members of the orb. On stage, founding member Alex Patterson grins as he mixes in samples his bandmate Thomas Fellman hasn't yet heard. This ping-pong dynamic stretches back to the legendary project's early days, when Patterson and KLF member Jimmy Corti would return home from the club and make ambient soundscapes for the come down. As the E-generation fell in love with Acid House, the orb was there to chill everyone out. And what they were doing musically in the chill-out room was often more interesting than what was playing on the main floor. RA's Matt McDermott sat down with the orb in Mexico City last month where they debriefed on their performance at Mutech Mexico the night before. Congratulations on your first Mexican show as a duo yesterday. Thank you very much. Thanks, yeah, it was a pleasure. One of the things I wanted to speak about regarding the show, Alex, I know that you're always bringing in new musical bits for an improvisatory live feel, and what were some surprises that you brought in last night, some new sonic mulch, as it were? I did a 59-second track on I'll Be Black, a reggae compilation. And there's a 59-second track that's just totally ambient and finishes off with a really huge explosion. I set that in emotion, and that ended the tune. So we went, ah, oh, ah. And everybody else was going, ah, oh, ah, as well, in the audience. It was, um, yeah, call it luck, call it, I'd like to call it magic. Beach Boys in Fluffies. But we've been doing that quite a lot, really. But it was different under an ambient version of Fluffies as opposed to a really a big beat version. So, Yeah, it might be a bit of a, a surprise maybe that we don't even play that many ambient shows. And yesterday was really totally focused on an ambient set, the main part, except for the end, right? But, yeah. but uh, since you asked about the surprises, there were loads of surprises, loads of samples Alex played I never heard before. And that's the joy for us to actually start interacting on those. When I, I play kind of the stems version of the tunes, 
and I very sort of freely leave space for Alex, take things out, bring other things in. I think the improvisatory element of, or aspect of yesterday was pretty big. People after asking, so was this all new tracks? <laughs> yeah. And that's the beauty of doing things that improvisation, experimentation, and doing something that you love and having the confidence to pull it off. It's a happy accident then. This is our life. Well, it's been 30 years of happy accidents, is there? <laughs> Actually, that method that you speak of seems somewhat similar to your studio practice as well. Uh, I was checking out the documentary about the orb, lunar orbit, which I highly recommend, and you were in Thomas's studio, I believe, in Berlin, which is also in your house, and you're behind the board, and you're on the decks using the effects on a Pioneer mixer or something Yeah, similar. I use all Pioneer stuff. Oh, it's all Pioneer now. I've got a 600 at home, Thomas has got a 600. And the difference with the 600, it's got a little sampler in it. And all you need is eight seconds on the sample. It doesn't have to be a mega sort of like, you know, it's, it's there and then you can cut it up as well. All on the, on the Pioneer mixer. I used to do that live until they brought out the 1000 and the 950, which have got more effects, but it hasn't got the sampler, which I kind of miss. But anyway, Happy To Be With You on Pond Fritz was done exactly like that. It's a loop of happy to be with you, it's near and far. Happy to be with you. And yeah, and that was the beginning of one of the tunes on Pond Fritz, I believe. Exactly, but it was a primitive way of using the sampler. And we've now adapted, rather than using eight seconds or eight bars, we now use just one bar of a sample and then create the song around each bar. And that's the beauty of what we do, is, is quite unique. And for the last LP, Chill Out World, which came out last year, there were also a lot of field recordings on that one as well, and it sort of served as an audio diary to some extent. Yeah. yeah. We seem to be going like for, like, American train noises is something we really like. We often record those. And when we were invited to play at the MOOC Fest in North Carolina last year, we spent a, almost a week down there, visited a few record shops, got some secondhand albums. Well, you went to the River Eno. Yeah, I discovered there was a River Eno. So the, he made some, some recordings So I went and recorded the River Eno, but I made a track called River Eno with a sample of the river. Yeah. So there you go. So we made one track actually just from elements we, we assembled and collected on this Durham Moogfest experience. And that was kind of nice to be, because then it has a, it's charged with meaning for us. Not only does it sound nice or interesting, but it has a historical connection with us. We've been there and looked, looked out for those samples together. That was a, it's a great kind of more poignant way of using samples. Yeah, I mean, I found a record that afternoon of uh, test airline frequencies and code words that they use for different airports work brilliantly again on this uh, chill out world album when you take your samples just don't take the obvious ones because people don't expect them to be a sample because it's so unobvious is there a breakdown between a musical and a non-musical sound for you when when you're looking for samples or for both of you when you're digging for samples these days, um, the way we put samples together is not so much one on top of the other or one after the other. We combine them. I always think, or I always say that they have to start to sing. Sort of, they have to sort of come 
beyond of what they represented beforehand. The combination has to add to the spark and to the entertainment. So the samples are, you know, I don't often think that even the ones who would have created the original one would recognize how we kind of sliced it up and put it together. We combine them in a kind of a way which I don't even think is need to describe. It's because there's never the same. We always try to make a song out of four songs. It's interesting, you said in the past that obviously your first job in the music industry was as a roadie for Killing Joke, and then you moved on to Editions EG, Brian Eno's somewhat highbrow experimental label. But one of the things that you've spoken of in the past is you've been attempting to remove ambient music from the more academic studied setting, and you feel like ambient music is a music that can be for the people, and that seems like a running theme of your career. Well, yeah, I think we've achieved that aim, definitely, from, from the 80s when, you know, you'd get an ambient... If I got an ambient gig in the 80s, it would be opening up a spa or a health centre in an afternoon, and the only people that are dancing there would be the, the waiters because they were, they were getting into the music I was playing, but everyone else was highbrow. I just wanted to break those barriers down. I was capable enough because I could talk the talk, I could do the other walk, and I could do the other talk as well. I was a conduit between the two, so to speak. The music that was actually given to people was just not commercially put out as a, as a way of saying, look, this is really good music. They didn't sell it, so you, it was just word of mouth. But most people who know of Brian Eno and the Ambient series, most people, I say that hopefully, and the Apollo album, which was where we as the Orb got a lot of our samples of the first album, all, all the space, like backside of the, you're on the backside of the moon, they'll never know. And all those kind of samples come from album film called For All Mankind, which is the astronauts on the moons, their dreams and their, what, their waking moments and what they talked about behind the scenes to what you normally get through NASA. And the music was put together by Brian Eno, which was the attraction in the first place. And it's just an amazing album. One of the tunes was picked up by Train Spotting. And Roger Eno, who became a cohort with us now, mentioned that because that was on Train Spotting, he could afford a house. Before that, nobody had ever heard of those tunes. And the same with Daniel Lenoir in, in many respects. He's got another world, though. He, he has his own magic. Working in those things in the, in the 80s and seeing them become part of, like, an ending by Brian Eno is now probably the best ambient tune ever, which is part of the Apollo album. Um, and you both met while you were a and ring for Edition CG yeah. as well. And yeah. you, you came in with some Teutonic Beats stuff, was that it? I came to Alex with a collection of stuff I've been working on in Berlin, not so much all, uh, as a producer myself, but also what other musicians did, because I felt it's time that we start to collect what's happening around us. So there were about half a dozen or artists, which I came to Alex with, and we had two connection levels. First of all, he liked what I brought to him, but second of all, we just connected as, as people immediately, started to go out on the same day, and I took him out to Shum, which is one of the legendary house clubs that was hanging out in London in the 80s. We became instant friends. 
And I don't know how long it was actually from the first meeting until Alex asked me whether I would be interested in collaborating on an orb track, which then became Outlands on the first album. But it, was, it seemed to me, looking back, it seemed very close connection. So it sparked off many different passes because the Teutonic Beat stuff then became like a quite a big hit with the Marathons moving at the time, which was in the charts. And then Sun Electric started their career basically also with this connection and released, yeah, could have a dozen of good albums after that as well. So it was really a starting point of many different um, careers, so to speak, yeah. A fertile period. And a fertile meeting. At the same point, I was also running a, my own record label while I was working at EG with youth called Wow, which was Wow Mr. Modo, Wow G Street. No other label would have picked the orb up at that point. So I had my own label to do my own thing, so. What about us? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But to get back to that period of time, 87, 89, this is this incredibly fertile period that births Acid House and the Orb's first gigs were you and Jimmy at Heaven on really long DJ sets in the chill out room there. Do you think that you arrived at just the right time? Like, it was another lucky accident, wasn't it? <laughs> it was the end of 89 and the press were looking for something brand new. And they saw this ambient thing that no one had ever done before in a back room of a, of a mad acid house club, which nobody really understood in the first place, but something even more surreal and ethereal and kind of was quite good, but couldn't get it, but it looked like it could be the future because it was the 90s were coming. We were still living in the 80s. And we were lucky. The press went, bing, okay, we're gonna take you into the 90s. We're gonna make you look like the new thing for the 90s. We dressed in white because the visuals on the wall or at the back, we became part of the visuals. You never saw us on stage as a, a band. And that was our intention. In the beginning of the band was very casual as well, correct? Yeah, it was a Sunday afternoon ambient project. And we, as I say, I was working at EG. My cohort at that time was Jimmy from KLF, who I'd been rodeoing with again when he was in Brilliant with Youth. So we had a relationship. I mean, he started off working with Brilliant as the out front sound man. Someone said, oh, he can play a guitar. And suddenly Jimmy Courtney became the guitarist. And the rest is kind of history in a funny way. You started on Sunday afternoons after clubbing, right? Yeah, that was it. I mean, we'd be up all night going out to... It was a shum weekender. Sunday afternoon, we'd been sunbathing, believe it or not, in, in, on Brighton Beach. And Jimmy was hiding underneath all loads of covers, but he'd forgotten to cover one little bit of the ankle. And he got a sunburnt ankle and a headache. So there was my chance take the drums out. And that's how Huge Ever Growing Pulsating Brain became that track because suddenly you realized it was actually quite nice without the drums. Again, another happy accident. <laughs> it's gonna happen a lot. Take the pain away. Yeah, <laughs> take the pain away, indeed. But it was you with the mini Ripperton sample? Yeah, I mean, the samples were me, yeah, definitely. And I mean, the, originally it was a bass line, but we pitched it up. On the actual single, you put chill out music for the E generation, sort of like an aligning purpose. And you, you yeah, feel like- Yeah, I mean, we were labeling ourselves because we, we were frightened of being labeled by the press. Again, going back to my EG pedigree, I hated the idea of being called new age. It was not what my intention of, of this music was. And new age, 
implies highbrow even more so than ambient. Wyndham Hill, that kind of shit. And that's real shit. It's not suspected hippies in transit, don't worry. Then a few years later, you're starting to make waves on the charts, and you're a resident DJ at Tresor at that time? As well as. I mean, I didn't start out as a DJ becoming a musician, but I was a musician first and started branching out into DJing. Actually, very much supported and kicked into the deep end by Alex, who asked me to join the Orb on an early tour as a, as a DJ in the ambient room, which is what's going on parallel to the gig. No, that was with Sun Electric and Juno yeah, Reactor. Getting into that. Um, yeah, that was a great tour. Was your idea that, oh, Thomas is going to be able to handle this, or this is your indoctrination into ambient house? I don't think any, anything like that at all. Um, we were in Transcentral doing Sun Electric mixes before the breakup of the all KLF connection. And that came about because the Chill Out album. They asked me to go along and do one of my mammoth DJ sessions. I did a six-hour DJ session at Transcentral. They cut it up and put it out as Chill Out and added a few things like Rolo's guitar from the wooden tops and the the Elvis sample, which I would never have touched. Other than that, it was a great album. DJing for you, especially in those early days, was that where you worked out a lot of what would end up being on the record? I suppose so, yeah. The beautiful thing about living in those times is if you lived those times, you never remembered them. <laughs> and I was one of those casualties, definitely. I just smoke a lot of marijuana and drink water, or coconut water at the moment, thank you. Well, I, I wouldn't call you a casualty. We're still sitting here 30 years later, you know? <laughs> well, occasionally I do something and then again, but it has to be a really good moment. So. I wanted to speak a little bit about the prankster ethos. Obviously, Jimmy went on to throw some of the greatest pranks ever with the KOF, and there's a sense of humor throughout your catalog as well. Um, does this get back to taking it out of like the self-serious, highbrow, ambient world, as well as just having a sense of humor and a knack for puns, perhaps? <laughs> well, uh, I can't answer that, really. May I step in? Because I think it has maybe a little bit to do with the aspect that the Orb was never a muso band. It was very much always coming from an, a playful angle, from an experimental angle. So therefore, the, it was never the question of, is the guitar solo loud enough for someone, you know? So there was space. There was space in terms of time you could fill on the record, but there was also headspace to come up with different ideas. You know, For me, joining the Orb group with their many different engineers, producers, and musicians, it was always a great surprise how little of the muso bit was coming in of the musicianship. It was a playfulness which created this unheard kind of type of music. And I think that's why humor had such a big space in, in the whole thing, because it was just part of our conversation. And we wanted to translate this vibe of our lifestyle into the music. So that's how it became part of it, I think. To skip forward to recent times, it seems like Moon Building 2703 AD, which began with a uh, Royal College of Opera commission, but then just became its own entity. That's a dance floor record, and it seems like it was intensely involved. Like, it seems like this was a long project that you really threw yourself into. Yeah, we made two albums when we did that album. We, were still, we worked on that album as a back burner and, and did two other albums at the same time. 
It was a long, a, a long drawn out process, but when we originally thought of it, it was in terms of an opera, but we didn't want to give it up. So we turned it into an electronic album. Personally, I'd love to do an opera. I've still got the itch. Dub opera, they didn't like the idea of it, but I was just trying to sell it to them. <laughs> dub, well, you mean no vocals, but opera is vocals, I know, but dub, anyway. <laughs> it nearly works. <laughs> Even though the, the original direction of what moon building was supposed to become was cut off, it was not so much a frustration element to it, because when that cancellation happened, we suddenly had the opportunity to go into the studio to work with Lee Scratch Perry. The moon building recordings were just on a shelf for a little bit, we worked quite freshly and happily with uh, Lee Scratch for, for two albums, and then we came back to it. And Lee Scratch Perry gave us a good, fresh, new approach to the way we produce our music, so to speak. He was so quick with his delivery of good lyrics, which always meant we had to create more beats for him to work on. So he was kind of kicking up a new level of energy within us, which we then brought back into moon building. So it, it was a beautiful, us for a beautiful marriage of these times where we felt we kind of grew as creative partners and could incorporate it in, into the album then, yeah. So working with Lee Perry, by the first day he had already done lyrics for everything that you brought in, is that the case? Four tracks, yeah. And then what? We did another uh, 12, 14 tracks. We did 18 or 19 tracks in a week. Relentless, man, relentless. Sometimes when, when we were not quite too happy with the result because they were, say, a little bit too momentarily drawn out of the situation, we just played it to him again, and he came up with something completely different, and which worked pretty well, and then we, we used that. So we not only were forced to be creative ourselves, but he opened up this big challenge for us to just use his spirit and his vocal deliveries to actually condense them quite a bit and make an original tune out of it, you know. So it was not only collecting what he did, but also searching the right music for it and putting it together so it could shine for both of us, you know. And yeah, it was uh, a very fruitful uh, collaboration. Basically what we did for the first day or so, before, we were going away and getting up early in the morning writing tracks for him. When he got up, he had the track to write. But in the meantime, I was DJing and getting him to sing along to some of the tunes. So I put on Towers of Dub, and he did a really good version, which I'm, if someone would like to remind me tonight, I'll play that. So and it's really quite, it's quite a pucker, because he's on about Thomas. It's really quite cool. It's interesting, at Land of Oz, you would often play like Roots and Dub early in the evening. But then that's what I grew up on. I mean, not from 15, 16. And ska was something that was really big in my life before the reggae. I learned all the ska dancing. I can't do it now, it's too complex. These giants have come into your orbit. We've got like Lee Scratch Perry, Mad Professor, Robert Fripp, David Gilmore, Steve Hillage. All these collaborations were part of that like messy, fruitful time that came about quite naturally or? Yeah, I mean, Lee Scratch Perry was probably the hardest one to get contact with, but I got a DJ gig with him, and then I managed to get two more, and the last one was here in Mexico 12 years ago. And he actually spoke to me. I was like, wow. 
<laughs> he's recognised me. He's a prophet, man. The man is to, to lots of people, and I know them. We saw that when we did a gig in Paris. There's thousands of people out there that worship this man. I've seen festivals where people do a, a candle-lit procession so he can walk out of the festival with candles. It's incredible. It's like throwing petals over it when Jesus is walking about. It's the same vibe with him. He's a really cool geezer. And he loves it. Uh, yeah, but then, I think I would really as well, but I haven't got that charismatic feel yet. I mean, he's 82 now. He deserves everything he's getting. He could be bitter and twisted, you know, with the, the Bob Marley moments where he kind of left that and saw Marley become this superstar. But he's still there and he's still doing it. And he's, and he's doing it because he loves the music. He wanted to do an album that's a traditional reggae, but it talked him out of that one. It's very difficult to get old people to change their ways. And he did. And that I have much respect for. And Fripp for you was an early influence as well. Fripp and Conrad Schnitzler, and at least in the former case, became a collaborator, yes? Yeah, I mean, I was fortunate in the late 70s to be in an art school where Conrad Schnitzler, this is kind of a Krautrock formative person, I'd say, right? So he was invited to be a guest professor and he installed a little studio. The idea of home studio didn't quite exist at that time. So it was basically just a two-track Revox, a mixer and a couple of synths and stuff. And he invited the students to come along and play, and that was the first uh, real strong indication that I felt this, I think, is maybe the way I would want to go as well. Then I met Fripp as well during those times when he was touring his Frippertronics at free shows in record stores and talked to him, got in touch with him, and, you know, through Alex and 12 years of working into the music, myself as, as being a musician and an artist, and we made this collaborative album FFWD together, which uh, for me was a full cycle type of glorious moment, yeah. Definitely recommend the FFWD album. And let's talk about Chill Out World a little more. This one seemed like a therapeutic album to some extent. Chill Out World is? Yeah. It's not like Dark Side of the Moon. It's a, it, it was made for mad people. That was the concept? Well, I, I did a talk on um, Dark Side of the Moon this summer when they were doing the exhibition for Pink Floyd at the, in a big museum in London, the V&A. And I was invited along to talk about that with... I did a little bit of research myself, and I kind of secretly do like that album. I don't really tell many people, but now I've told the whole world, so I'll get over it, Patterson. It's okay. And it's actually for my people, people who've got a little bit bipolar, and there's a lot of us about. And I say us, because I'm a little bit bipolar. It doesn't mean we're mad. It just means we're just a bit more eccentric. Gary Newman's just told the world that he's bipolar. Oh, it's really brave for someone to say that. It's something that's difficult to, to pinpoint, but musically, you can find the right melodies that calm you down and give you that contemplation moment. And Dark Side of the Moon, if you think of it as a bipolar album, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a heartbeat at the beginning and a heartbeat at the end. And it's always gone about being mad. <laughs> There's loads of little bits in there. And a lot of people think it's about the one that left. Yeah. It was well known that halfway through a gig in the 60s, he'll be singing a different song to the song they were playing. 
because he was so off his head. Which I can again identify with a little bit in that sense. Through having six or seven turntables and playing loads of different music at the same time. Where am I? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Cow being a therapeutic album, I don't know, it seems to be almost a little bit too far gone. Alex expressed the wish of doing an ambient album, which we always said, oh, let's do an ambient track. And then we found it, found it a good beat and it ended up not being an ambient track. So this time we felt, okay, let's actually stick to that and, and leave it at that. And we were surprised how natural and how fast and fluid it all happened. It came together in a far smaller space of time than, than we expected. And it just seemed, for me, that was just a proof that it's the right thing to do. Because there were no arguments. It was just like track after track. And then uh, we looked at it and said, yeah. It's about time. I mean, FFWD was the Orb's ambient album, but we just didn't want to call it the Orb because FFWD was fast forward. And it was Fripp, Fellman, Weston and Doctor, or Duncan as my first name. So it all fitted anyway. And I like a good acronym. Like shit is a great acronym. It means suspected hippie in transit. But that's another story again. But it's interesting that Alex mentioned this, this uh, suspected hippies in transit thing because that's also our newest track we just released on, yeah. on Shit Catapult for their 20th it's anniversary. Shit as well. It's actually yesterday. They didn't Friday, want to know. Yeah, I wanted to today. call one of the tr tracks Your Shit's Fat, but they didn't, want to, they didn't get that one. This is too English. So what's next? I've heard that there's an Albatross remix in the works as well. Yeah, I think it's in the pressing plant by now, right? We did it a few weeks, a few months ago. Well, we've got an album that's come out on Shit Catapult. It's done like a, like a DJ introducing tracks and taking different samples from bloopers from around the world. And that sort of goes back to what informed your DJing and the orb in general with, with Kiss. Way before that was Kiss FM, yeah, with Shit Pettibone. And again, remind me tonight, I'll play you what brought in everything became possible when I heard what they did to Blue Monday by New Order in 1981 on KISS, New York. This is the future. Bringing all the beats very heavy, yeah. How do you keep it interesting for yourself? Maybe just have a little snippet of, of something that... I was trying to get Radio 4 by Pill in the set last night. 30 seconds, I actually listened to it away from the whole gig on my own. Again, it's improvisation. I'm doing everything as naturally as possible without any sound check, without any rehearsal. We don't rehearse. This is part of our philosophy as well. Is that luck again? <laughs> the inspiration there was a demo version and the first 10 seconds of Radio 4 by Public Image. Anybody familiar with this tune? Radio 4 by Public Image. It's like a really classical track with no vocals on it. It's... Radio 4, done by a punk band. And Radio 4 is very much a very posh radio station. And it doesn't fit the criteria, but it's on the Metal Box album. And if you check it out, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's one of the best ambient tunes you'll ever want to hear. It's Wobble just free-forming on bass. And Levine playing some kind of weird strings and not the guitar. He's taken the guitar away and put strings in instead. And this is in 1979, it's, not, it's a long time ago. Yeah, I mean, this is what keeps me kind of amused in the middle of a set. Thomas wouldn't even know I was doing that. 
But then a little snippet would come out, but he wouldn't know it was that because I would have reversed it, pitched it right down and put an effect on it so you wouldn't have no idea where it came from and what it was. But I did. And that's my little... That's my happy moment. <laughs> that happens hopefully every, every minute or so, <laughs> over a period of an hour and a half. So, yeah. These little Easter eggs that you put into the set then. Yeah, I mean, I also found the Juno Reactor album I did called Luciana, which is a one-hour piece of music. I found that last night, and I used a lot of the... that was The space was there for low end for me to play around with, and I did. Oh, I'm remembering what I did last night, blimey. Obviously, I don't drink anymore. Bloody hell. So you're DJing tonight as well? At... I am as well as, yeah. <laughs> 2 a.m. spot. Have you managed to go record digging in Mexico City so far? Yeah, I found a, one record. It was made in England, but it was a record from Greenland. And it was recorded in the 1890s. And it's shamanic. I was very itchy to get it, but I think I can get it cheaper in London. It's English, for God's sake. You know, I'm going there. You know, I live there. You know, sorry. I'm good. What about you? Have you found anything on this trip? Not in terms of records yet. We had a little bit of a short stroll into two shops today. But, you know, I'm open. Tomorrow can happen. I mean, I found one of my, one of my early 12 inches that we put out on Wow Modo. Gave me a little smile. That goes back to tonight, where I've got a lot of mambo shit, which I'm going to fuck you lot up with, because it's all Spanish. <laughs> so I'm going to enjoy that for half an hour. And I tried that out in Vietnam two weeks ago, and it worked really well, so I know what I'm doing there, so... You did the Spanish thing in Vietnam, yeah? Well, I just thought, why not? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't know English anyway, so... And you've referred to DJing as recreation in the past, or that, that's like, compared to the studio time, this is where you're just able to have fun, let loose. Uh, both is fun. If it wasn't fun, I wouldn't do it. Full stop. And I think I can, take, I can say that with, for all for us. It's definitely been fun. It's a... Yeah, I mean, in the documentary... You know. It would be, mm, if it wasn't fun. <laughs> Who took the F out of fun? I didn't. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the documentary, you have a spliff, you go in the studio, you stay at the decks, talk football, eat a, eat a pizza. It, it, it does look, look perfect. Yeah, well, you know, it looks quite easy going, but, you know, it took us a while, actually, to achieve that, to be able to be ready for the moment, not feel under pressure, just be relaxed and let, let the things happen, you know. It, that wasn't always so easy going, but we were, I'm very glad it kind of became better and better and better. So that's why I feel we achieved a good level of showing what really entertains us and what is really important for us. I feel that we're really saying what we like through the Chill Out World album. It feels close, you know? It feels honest. I think that's good for me. Any last words, Dr. Alex? There's loads of last words, but... The future's bright, the future's orb, and we're moving into our 30th decade next year, and we're still full of surprises. And I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, and thanks to Mutech for having me.